God. And thank you, Caroline, for reading that story so beautifully. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer, our salvation, and our friend. May all the children of God say, Amen. Friends, my name's Matt Headley. I've, you may not recognize me because I don't have my glasses today. I've mis- managed to misplace them, but I am the guy with the guitar some Sundays or conducting the hymns, and so I appreciate my friends that are helping um, in ways that I normally serve. But I am a have been a prodigal from the pulpit for the last 52 weeks. I've not preached a sermon. I, I used to be a pastor at Weaver United Methodist Church, and um, so I've got a lot of preaching to get out of my system today, and so um, I'm, I'm kind of full to the brim with the message, so I may go a little long, but if you'll say amen, then I might get a little excited, and I might preach a little bit faster, and we could get out of here before lunchtime, so Amen. <laughs> So, I appreciate that, and I'll take all that I can get. Um, In Jesus' story of the prodigal son that we just heard Caroline read, God upsets our ideas about what's fair, about who's deserving of grace and who's not, and we discover that God's grace, in fact, is prodigal, that God's grace is wasteful in some ways, illogical, excessive, even full to the brim, breaking the rules of who we are might think is deserving of grace and who's not. When I was at Weaver, one year for Christmas, um, the church decided to give a gift to the community. The uh, Methodist Church in Weaver was right on the corner of Anniston Street and Parker, and so it was a pretty busy intersection. It used to be a red light, but um, since the population's declined, it was just a stop sign, but it was still pretty busy, and so it was a really great location for the church. Right there on the corner, we decided to put up a a food pantry. The church decided to do this. This wasn't my idea. And it was just a little box about that big. And um, there's a cute picture of my kids, Hannah and Noah, a couple of years. It's probably 2017. And their Sunday school class and that little food pantry you can see is right there on the corner next to the church sign. And it was a really awesome thing because people would come, uh, church members and non-church members, just random folks from the community that we didn't know. They would come and put food in the pantry, and then other people would come and take what they needed out. Actually, there's one right over next to Family Services I saw this week, uh, just right across the street. So it was a pretty amazing thing. It'd be filled to the brim with hamburger helper or canned food, formula, baby diapers, mac and cheese, bean weenies, whatever you could imagine, whatever you could need, Right. And people would come and get what they need, and then um, some would come and empty it out almost as soon as it, would f- it was filled. So multiple times a day, this food pantry would be filled to the brim and then emptied out, maybe four, five, six times a day. And honestly, it, sometimes I'd be walking to the church. We live pretty close, and so I, I'd walk there, and I'd see somebody pull up in a car that was nicer than what I was driving, and I'd see them empty it out, and I'd have to catch myself from judging them for a minute. Do they really need that? Did they really need to take all that food out? Well, maybe they were taking it to someone else that needed it. But I so quickly would go to a place of judgment. And, and some folks in our church struggled with me on this. And we said, well, maybe, maybe it's being abused. Maybe some of these people that are taking things out of the pantry don't really need it. And so maybe we should move it into the building where we could have hours and it would be supervised. And then, and then we could make sure that it was not being 
abused, that our generosity wasn't being taken for granted, right? We never did that. It stayed out on the corner, and people continue, even now, to empty it out and fill it up. Random people from the community that we don't even know. It reminded me of one of my heroes that I've been kind of rediscovering lately, Ron Finley. Any of y'all like TED Talks on YouTube? Ron Finley's the gangster gardener. He's the guy that planted a, a food strip out on his lawn uh, on the parking strip. It's a property that in South Central LA, they have this uh, deal where you're supposed to take care of this part of the lawn, but it actually is owned by the city. And so he planted a garden of vegetables and strawberries, and his neighbors do what neighbors sometimes do. They complained. And so the city said, well, you got to take it down. And he said, well, no. And then they issued a warrant for his arrest, and, and then the news outlets got a hold of it, and he becomes Ron Finley, the gangster gardener in South Central L.A. And, and so people would ask him, well, you're, planning, you're putting all this food out there. You're spending all this time and energy. Aren't you afraid that somebody's going to steal it? And he says, well, of course I'm not afraid they're going to steal it. That's why it's there. That's why I put it there. In the words of one of our leaders at Weaver, you can't steal something that's free. You can't steal grace. But we struggle sometimes with this. When, when things are wasted, maybe when the people that actually need are going without because folks that maybe don't, don't need are receiving all the help. And here at Aniston, we're definitely familiar with lots of need. And we wonder, are we being good stewards with the resources that we have? We struggle with waste. The staff knows, they've come to know me by now, I really struggle with food waste. If you leave something in the refrigerator for more than a couple days, Matt's going to take care of it. I tell folks I was raised in the Great Depression. I have a hard time with food waste. But we, we struggle, maybe sometimes as middle class, you know, church-going folks, with making sure that things are fair. And so maybe sometimes we can relate to that older sibling that we heard about, the older brother, and said, look, I've worked for my father all these years. I've been faithful. I've followed the rules. Why does this idiot brother of mine get all the special treatment? You didn't slaughter a young goat for me, and now you're giving him the fatted calf. Any older siblings here still waiting on your young goat? Y'all can relate to that maybe a little bit? <laughs> Amen? Who doesn't relate to a young goat? needing to get your young goat. We, we, we like people to play by the rules in the church, especially when we're worried about there being enough. But here comes Jesus, wasting all his time on these tax collectors and sinners, the people that are not playing by the rules. They're not following the religious laws like the good religious folk. And Jesus is wasting all his time with them. And so they're grumbling. Those are the first few verses we heard read this morning, that the Pharisees are grumbling because Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus' response is to tell three stories that shake up our expectations about what's fair. First, he tells this story about a shepherd that leaves 99 sheep behind, a whole flock of sheep to go after one. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't seem a very responsible thing for a shepherd to do, right? to leave all those sheep vulnerable, to go after one, but that's the kind of story Jesus tells. And then he tells another story about this woman who has ten coins, and she loses one, so she ends up sweeping the whole house to find it. And then when she does, she invites the whole neighborhood over for a party. Seems a little excessive, doesn't it? Maybe a little over the top. Not entirely logical, Jesus. These stories don't make a whole lot of sense. And so then finally, 
The third of these stories is the one that we've heard this morning, the story of the prodigal, the prodigal son. We think of the prodigal son because he's wasteful, right? He, he says, Dad, you know what? You're not dead yet, but you might as well be dead to me, so why don't you go ahead and give me your share of the inheritance now? Any of y'all asked for your share of the inheritance before your, pa- your parents passed? Nobody? Okay, so this guy's got some audacity, right, to ask his dad, go ahead and give me your in- my share of the inheritance now. And then he goes and wastes it. So we call him the prodigal son. But if you think about it, the other characters in the story are also wasteful in a way. The father, when he sees the son coming up the driveway, does he stand there and wait for him to grovel a little bit? Does he hold him accountable? No, we get none of that in the story. He puts a ring on the, the guy's finger and sandals on his feet. He can't even finish his apology. He's got this prepared response to his dad, Dad, I'm not worthy. Um, if you'll just receive me back. And the, the father interrupts him, gives him a great big hug, wasting this grace on his son. The, the father is excessive in his love toward the son, even slaughters the young calf. And then even the older son, you could say, is prodigal. He's striving for righteousness. He's trying to be like those Pharisees that Jesus taught us we're supposed to be like. I was listening to Mickey Starling preach at Shepherd's Table this morning, and Jesus says, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. And so here we have this older son that's trying to do just that. He's, he says, I've been here, man. I've been working the rules. I've stuck with the program. I've never wandered away, and you never even gave me so much as a young goat. So this younger son is, is a little over the top in his rule following. Any rule followers in here? Amen? We got some rules. Come on, y'all. I know we're church folks. We, we like to follow the rules, or you wouldn't be here this morning. But this is what God's grace is like. It's prodigal. It's excessive. It's over the top. It's full to the brim. If you see it, you just look outside on your windshield. What's going on right now? What do you have all over your cars? All this pollen. Is that really necessary? It's a little over the top, right? God seems to be excessive. Or you think about the seeds that are in a watermelon. How many seeds do you need to grow a watermelon plant? How many do you get in a watermelon? Two, three hundred, four hundred? It's a little excessive, don't you think, the Lord? (laughs) Or a, a sunflower? God's grace is prodigal toward us. We see this in creation. We see this in the story of God. You think about Jesus, the way he would feed 5,000 with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, and then the leftovers, how many were there? Enough to fill 12 baskets? Or the fact that God even came in the form of a human being. Did he really need to do that, or couldn't he just snapped his fingers and made us all righteous in his eyes? He comes as a human being and, and suffers. We just think of that summary in the gospel that we all know. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen loved the whole world, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him. Anybody, really? Anybody? Everybody? Whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This grace is so big, so excessive, so beyond our comprehension, imagination. John Wesley actually had to come up, or the Wesleyan tradition came up with three different Ways to describe grace. You hear about this in the Methodist church, the provenient grace that goes before us. It's there before we even knew we needed it. The justifying grace of Jesus suffering and dying on the cross for you and for me. 
and the sanctifying grace, the grace that helps us to continue to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We, we're soaked in grace. Our lives are inundated with grace. It's, it's beyond what we could imagine or need. I have trouble wrapping my head around this, this idea of grace. Do you? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical to me. As St. Augustine, one of the fathers of the church said, Lord, you never depart from us, but yet only with difficulties do we return to you. You never depart from us. You're always with us, and only with difficulty do we return home to God. I have difficulty with that. Kirsten Powers is an author um, in, in a book she's written, Saving Grace. She says this about grace I found helpful to get my mind around this paradox of grace. She says, true grace is otherworldly. It goes against every instinct that we have to seek revenge for wrongs or to shame and humiliate people who have acted immorally or unethically. It is what the theologian Dorothy Sole, who grew up in Nazi Germany, called borrowing the eyes of God, seeing people as God sees them. True grace enables us to see the divinity in every single person. No matter what they've done, what they believe in, or who they voted for. She goes on to say that grace exists especially for that person that we feel is uniquely unworthy of grace. Anybody know some uniquely unworthy people? Amen? Maybe you feel uniquely unworthy. Maybe you have a neighbor that may seem uniquely unworthy of your grace. Maybe a sibling that just is driving you nuts right now. Or a family member. Someone has done or said something repulsive or harmful to us. Or in some cases, we're still bound to dislike. Those are the people that are uniquely worthy of grace. How do we live into this kind of grace that defies our logic, our ability to comprehend? How do we live into that? I don't know. I'm still working that out. There is a scripture that that I've been finding helpful. It's one that we often hear on Ash Wednesday, the first day of the season that we're living in called Lent. We'll hear from Isaiah 58. It keeps coming up in my morning prayer time where Isaiah describes the people's frustration. They're saying, why have we fasted? Why have we followed all these rules and done all these religious observances, and we're still not hearing from you, God. We still don't feel like you're present in our lives. We've done all the right things like the older brother did. And God's response to the people and their frustration is this. If you would do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, always watching out for who's getting their fair share, who's not, and instead, if you would spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, pour yourselves out for those that are hungry and those that are oppressed. Then, he says, if you will do those things, if you will look out for the poor, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noon day. He says you'll be like a well-watered garden. Some of y'all might be planting vegetable gardens right now. What a beautiful image that God's grace would pour out into our lives as we seek out the lost, those that are truly broken, those that are living, living on the margins. Who are those folks that we deem as a society uniquely unworthy? 
maybe sitting outside on the sidewalk, right, around this building that we're worshiping in. Maybe folks in our neighborhood, those neighbors that just drive us crazy, that are uniquely unworthy of God's grace, or people in our country. How might we live into this prodigal grace, this over-the-top, full-to-the-brim, excessive grace with others? Seeing them with the eyes of God, perhaps it would start with just something as simple as looking them in the eye and smiling, asking how they're doing, treating them with dignity and respect as another fellow human being. Maybe we might share a meal with someone at shepherd's table or in our home, someone that is very different than us. How might we enter into this kind of grace with, in our relationship with the Lord? Not only with others, but with, with the Lord God. How might we be prodigal in, in our attempts to connect with God? Maybe it's just a matter of counting the number of dandelions and delighting into the dandelions that are in your lawn right now that are maybe driving you crazy. Or thanking God when you see all this pollen. Say, God, your grace is amazing. It's full to the brim. Maybe it might be shouting amen during worship. Amen? Doing something that's over the top. Is that a little over the top for First Methodist? I don't know. <laughs> amen? Maybe raising your hands in worship might be over the top. Maybe coming down and praying at the altar might be an illustration of God's grace towards you, your response to God's grace. Or maybe it's simply sitting silently in stillness before the Lord. Maybe trying to incorporate a practice of doing that for two or five minutes a day. Working your way up maybe to 20 minutes of sitting in silence before God. Would that seem excessive? Would that seem like a lot? Maybe there are ways that we can become more prodigal in our spiritual lives in response to God's prodigality and his graciousness toward us. The mystic, one of the great mystical teachers of our time, Thomas Merton, was a brilliant author. He had huge potential. He was reading the newspaper when he was like five years old. And he decided, after living a life of prodigality, of wastefulness and drinking and spending time with women that he probably shouldn't be spending time with, he decided to become a monk in one of the strictest orders, a Trappist monk. He took on a vow of silence, absolute silence. He didn't speak. These, these Trappist monks don't speak to each other and, and of manual labor on a farm. And he said that as we waste our time with God in prayer, one of his last books that he wrote before he died, uh, an untimely death, he, he wrote about contemplative prayer, about sitting in silence with God and as we waste our time, in a way, we think we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to say stuff to God, and so it may seem like a waste of time to sit in silence. But he says, when we do that, we in fact are returning to our true selves, to home. We're coming home like the prodigal son did, to God in us. He says, in that inner sanctuary within, which is God's temple, God's heaven right here in our hearts, and at the end of the prodigal's homecoming journey, returning to the Father's house. May we return to the Father's house, to our true, grace-filled selves with God, as that old hymn that we heard this morning bids us. Come home, 
Come home. You who are weary, come home. You can sing it with me. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, oh sinner, come home. Would you pray with me? Gracious, loving God, we thank you for the invitation to return to our true selves, to you living in us. We ask that you would fill us with your grace, with that over-the-top, full-to-the-brim, prodigal grace that you make available to us, that we might access that grace to share it with others, especially with ourselves that we tend to be so hard on Help us to be gracious with ourselves so that we might be gracious and loving toward one another. May that start with the folks that are sitting next to us in the pews, the folks that are gathered around this building outside that may not feel worthy of coming into this space. May that grace extend to our neighborhoods and to places that defy our comprehension or our expectations for what's realistic. We thank you for your radical prodigal grace toward us. Help us to respond to you in faith. In Christ's name, we pray, and may all of the prodigals of God say together, amen.